regrets. Now today in part three, we are going to tackle uh, the, the second question, which is called the conscience question. The conscience question. And again, if you're here today, you're not a believer, this is going to be really useful because what we're going to tackle is that kind of intangible part of us that we all know so well. It's the part of us that we get to a light and it's turning orange. It says, you should stop now. And we go, well, it's probably a suggestion. It's that part of us when, when we're presented with something that is kind of ambivalent in terms of you know, left or right. We're not really certain because something, something in us like an internal, what would you call it, beacon, sounds within us and says, you should probably think about this. You should probably stop and ask the first question, are you being honest with yourself? And to kick off, let me ask you this question. I want you to really think about this for a second. Is there a tension in your life right now that deserves your attention. Is there a tension in your life right now that deserves your attention? Because think about the conscience question. That's what we're talking. We're talking about this, this inward, this, inter- this internal tension that we all experience. You know, some of you may call it, or I've heard it said, or, or spoken about this, we call it a red flag moment, right? It's a red flag moment. It's like, it's, like, it's like you're talking to someone and you're kind of, you know, begin to build trust with them and all of a sudden they, sudden they say something and it becomes a red flag moment. It's that moment when you're, when you're, you know, you're scrolling online and all of a sudden, like I did there, I got an inbox from a friend and I was like, man, his account, his, you know, the, the account handle name looks different. So I clicked on his account and, and I obviously follow this person. He's my friend, a very close friend. And all of his all of his pictures on his profile are all updated, all aligned chronologically. It all made sense. The only thing that was kind of out of whack was this account didn't have as many followers as my friend's account. And I'm looking at this thing, I'm thinking, this is an identical replica of my friend's account. I went back, you know, typed in his name, and rather than being, let's call it Jamie Corcoran, this account was Jamie Corcoran 1 in his name. And I was suddenly realized, man, this is a fake account. Ever got an email from the bank? A text message from a, 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 a company, you, a provider you use. I remember years ago, my parents-in-law got such a phone call and they, these people were scammers and tried to get them to log into their computer. And as they logged into their computer, this person somewhere else in the world took control of their computer in front of their very eyes and tried to take money out of their bank account. I mean, we all know what it's like to be in a position where it's like, man, I'm just not sure. Something about this seems suspicious. Maybe you're here and it's a relational red flag. You've been hanging out with someone, considering maybe going to another level of relationship, maybe you know, making it more formal, maybe even thinking about something more serious. But something inside you says, there's a red flag here. Something doesn't line up about this person. The story isn't what it seems to be. And the point of today's message is that this red flag moment isn't an inconvenience put there by God to annoy us. It's a tension. An important tension that if we allow it can actually help us and save us from much regret. The bottom line is, is that when we find ourselves facing tension, is the bottom line of the whole, I'm going to give you, if you want to go to sleep, I'm going to tell you right now the whole message and you can fall asleep. The bottom line is, we need to pay attention to the tension. We need to pay attention to the tension. In fact, put it this way, so many of us, our regrets wouldn't be regrets if when we made the decisions that became regrets, we had listened to the red flag. Or maybe you grew up in church and you hear people talk about a check in my spirit. If we paid attention to the red flags, to the checks in our spirit, perhaps we wouldn't have the regrets that so powerfully shape 
our lives. We need to pay attention to the tension. What does it mean? It means we shouldn't ignore it, number one. I know it's convenient. I know it's easy. I know it's the, the path of least resistance. But when we feel a kind of a, a, a conscientious red flag, we shouldn't ignore it. We shouldn't brush by it either. We shouldn't just go, ah, it's no big deal, not the end of the world. We shouldn't set it aside. We shouldn't rush into it or rush by it or, or rush it along. You know, if, if, if we ignore it and we brush it, eventually we rush it. And then what happens last and not least, but then we end up talking ourselves into it, right? Because it begins as, a, ah, I'm not really sure, ignore that. Ah, it's no big deal, I'll brush it aside. Ah, let's just go ahead anyway. It becomes us selling ourselves again. And what we're selling ourselves into is not, because we, we so rarely, right, sell ourselves into good decisions, but we seem to always sell ourselves into our worst regrets. Bottom line is we can't excuse it. If we're going to change, if this year's going to be different, then we've got to make a commitment that we don't excuse it. We don't simply talk it away, explain it away, rationalize it away. You know, there's a difference between facts and feelings. Because some of you right now are pushing back and saying, well, that, that sounds nice. That sounds very emotional. But I'm a, I'm a logical person. I'm a rational person. I, I don't make big decisions based off of how I feel, right? I make my decisions based off fact. Well, actually, when you study this from a psychological perspective, there's this weird phenomena that happens in all of our minds where very often we think we're thinking, but actually we're thinking about how we're feeling. We think we're having a rational, logical, completely objective conversation in our head about whether or not we should do something. All the while, the tension is there. But in actual fact, we're not thinking about thinking. We're thinking about feeling. And our feeling affects and shapes our thinking. And very often, what we think we're thinking is not thinking at all. It's feeling. And so even though we push back, go, no, no, I'm not a touchy feel. I'm not someone who's given in to making crazy. I'm a, I'm a thinker. I'm a logical person. You know, I write things down. I have lists. I look at the pros and cons, the black and white. Yeah, but who writes the pros and cons? Who decides which column is black or white? Who decides what should be added and what should be omitted? You do. And so if you're, if you're doing an exercise of pro and con that doesn't, isn't predicated by, am I being honest with myself Really? I mean, he's a good guy, comes from a good family, he's, going, he's doing a good co- college course, doesn't love God, doesn't read his word, doesn't go to church. I mean, <laughs> no big deal, right? I know I'll pray him into the kingdom. You know, I'll just, I'll just keep going with this relationship, red flag, red flag, red flag, no big deal. You know, people around you, no, no, that's not good. And we, we make these choices, we make these decisions on biased questions that end up very often being regrets. You see, wisdom oftentimes, and very unpopularly, unpopularly, looks like waiting. Very often, when in doubt, wisdom equals waiting. In fact, again, when you study the psychology of all this, psychologists talk about the fact that when you're trying to make a decision and you feel an internal hesitation, there's something in you tells you to pause. Very often, that is actually your intellect. That is actually your prefrontal lobe telling you, stop, this is not rational, this is not logical. Take some more time, establish more facts, gain a better perspective because you're operating on feelings and not on facts. It's so funny that psychologists just basically back up what God already knows to be true and that is wisdom so often means waste. You can never be too slow, but you can always be 
too early. Also a correlation with friends and family, right? That so often, uh, you know, the red flag moment doesn't just come internally. It comes from someone that knows us and loves us, right? So we're, we're, we're thinking about making a choice and, and it's, it's, it's something that we involve people into, which is oftentimes a healthy thing once they're coming from a good place. We should never allow people to speak into our lives who don't live the thing that we want to live. You see what I'm saying? Like that's not wisdom. But when someone who's got a good example, someone who's, in my opinion, godly and obviously has, has a foundation on his word is speaking, we should listen. You know? But what happens? So often is we discount them. We don't listen. We go, ah, what would you know? Ah, you know, you're young. You're old. You're Irish. You're not Irish. You're a man. You're a woman. You're from Mayo. You're from Roscommon. You're from Dublin. I mean, what would you know? You don't like music. You don't play an instrument. You're not an artist. You can't write. You're not intellectual. You haven't finished college. I mean, you're not like me. So even though what you're saying is aligning with the attention within me that I don't want to pay attention to, because you're like me, I'm just going to discount what you have to say, right? This happens all the time. The greatest example of this is me ma. Right? Your mother. Your mother is the greatest example. If, if we could conceptualize mothers in, a, in an image, it would be a, 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 the proverbial red flag. Mothers have the ability to sniff out trouble before we even see it coming and go, are you sure with that now? I remember back, back in the summer, uh, my mother was trying to get me to do something that I did not want to do. And at the time, I was like, no, no, no. I was trying to be careful. Like, is it my stubbornness or is it whatever it is? And long story short, she literally rang me for, for seven days. And, uh, and of course, I kept ignoring it. And eventually, I, I, I ignored the red flag. I ignored me ma, went my own way. And long story short, I've been regretting that decision ever since. Anyone, anyone want to know what the decision is, by the way? Yeah, my mother, when I had COVID, just to let you know, my mother said, go get a PCR test. I said, I don't want anyone sticking something up my nose. No way. I've got COVID. I'm good. I'm grand. I'll, I'll do something else later on. Well, it turns out then, just as I got COVID, the government brought in the COVID pass, which meant I couldn't eat in restaurants. I couldn't go to the cinema. I couldn't go to a coffee shop. I couldn't do anything for six months because I didn't listen to me ma. And usually, in terms of the hierarchy of wisdom in family, what comes second if you're married is your wife. And when your man and wife line up, God is speaking to you. Because that doesn't happen very often, right guys? But when they're lining up and saying the same thing, it's probably the voice of the Holy Spirit. But again, aside from the humor, there's actually, again, science behind this. You see, we dodge the truth by discounting the truth teller. We dodge the truth. So when someone's telling us that we know to be true, it makes us uncomfortable. It makes us feel bad. We don't want to hear that. We don't want to know that. How we get around it is we discount the person. How would you know? You've never been where I've been. You don't have kids. You You don't have a job like me. You don't know the stress I'm under. You have no idea. And this isn't just a a characteristic from from a melodramatic TV show. This is actually science. Science calls this the genetic fallacy or the fallacy of origins. Human beings have this this trigger in our brain that when we hear something that doesn't align to what we want to do, we just switch them off. It's almost like we have the power to mute people. Like, I don't know, a decision, something in me tells me I shouldn't. What do you think? Oh, you agree with the voice inside me? Mute and mute 
and mute and mute 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 and follow and follow and follow oh pastor patrick's called me better answer that one because more than likely he's gonna line too so i'm gonna call out every single voice in my life and find some people that tell me i should do what i want to do even though everything else is telling me i shouldn't and again, if you're in that camp, we all do this. Don't feel bad because this is a human thing. It's literally a part of our, it's called genetic fallacy because it is this mysterious thing that we so often do. And part of the reason why we do this is because something in us, there's like an arrogance in us that believes that we can predict our own future. Right? We have this thing in us that we think, no, no, I know the outcome. I know how, don't leave with me, don't worry, I hear you, you're older, you're wiser, you have much more experience, but don't worry, I know where this is going, I've got this under my control, right? How, why is it so often what we had under our control six months ago is now out of control? What we thought was a good question, a good decision, ends up becoming our greatest and most recent regret. It's because something in us tells us, yeah, trust yourself. Trust your heart. You know what you're doing. You can predict your future. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever been disappointed in life? Disappointed recently? Just last week, my football team uh, lost in the playoffs. That was very disappointing. But it was only disappointing momentarily because they've had the worst season in years. It was a bonus that we were even there. My disappointment was measured. Why? Watch this. Because my outcome was accurate. Because I knew that even if we won the game, made the finals, that was a great bonus, but we didn't deserve it. More than likely, the outcome for my team was a loss. You see, what disappointment is, disappointment happens, disappointment is what happens when, is the experience that we, we have when we mispredict the future. When we say, no, this is definitely going to happen. I'm going to ignore all these voices. I'm going to go over here. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do it my way. I'm going to take control. And then what we predicted doesn't happen. And then what happens is we experience disappointment. Ignoring the tension inside of us is what sets us up for disappointment. Now, some of us, we've been hurt in the past, right? Come on. We've been hurt. We watched it online. We've been hurt. And how do we deal with this hurt? We deal with this hurt by never trusting people. By not having a prediction. By not having any, any hope for an outcome. And by not having hope for an outcome, we think we're protecting ourselves against disappointment. But that is a joyless way to live life. Yes, people hurt us. Yes, as we're going to see people betray us. But life is about being connected with others in relationships. And not all relationships will end in broken trust and betrayal. And even if every single person on the earth betrays you and breaks your trust, here's what I can say with absolute certainty. God never will. He never will. He is faithful. He is faithful to you in every way. But ignoring this tension is what sets us up for disappointment. And what do disappointments grow into? Regrets. Disappointments become regrets. The bottom line is, is that when we have a tension within us, when something is bothering you, let what's bothering you bother you. Pay attention to the tension. Now, 
We're going to look at an example of this in God's Word. There's many, many examples of this in Scripture. But one famous example uh, happened in the life of Solomon's father, a guy called David. Many of us know him as King David from the story David and Goliath. And in 1 Samuel chapter 24, and Samuel's name is important because I'll mention it in a second. In 1 Samuel 24, we're told this story. There's a really key phrase, I'll tell you when we get to it, that kind of highlights this entire idea of the conscience question. But we find David in a position where it seems like making a certain choice will work well for him and work well for his followers. It seems by all accounts it is the right choice. But something inside of him, something, there's a tension that just causes a hesitation that causes him to question. It actually ends up being a, a very important point for the shaping of his entire life, family, and career. Here's verse 1. We're told, after Saul returned from pursuing the Philistines, he was told, David is in the desert of Engedi. So Saul took 3,000 able young men from all Israel and set out to look for David and his men near the crags of the wild goats. Okay, pause. If you're new to church or not a Christ follower, there's a lot of, kind of, lot, lot of going on here. Let me, just try to, let me just try to bring you up to date in terms of biblical history. So we kind of know they need a God created Adam and Eve. And after Adam and Eve came Noah and the ark. And then came Abraham. And Abraham had a son called Isaac. And Isaac, Jacob. And Jacob had a son called Joseph. And Joseph, we know, uh, basically was uh, second in command to Pharaoh in Egypt. And his fat, all his brothers moved down there. They became a nation. Eventually they became oppressed and suppressed. Cried to God. God raised up Moses. Moses took them out of Egypt into the, into the desert for 40 years. Moses died. God raised up Joshua. Joshua led the people of Israel back into the promised land. After Joshua died, there was a period of, of a couple of hundred years where there wasn't any one leader in the Israelite nation. There was these people called judges, like Samson and Gideon, and you know these people. And the last judge, the last living judge, was a prophet called Samuel who wrote said book. And it got to a point in Israel's, Israel's story where people want, they want to have a king. All these other nations have a king. And God's like, I'm your king. Yeah, but we want like a dude with a beard and a spear. Like we want a physical representation of you know, strength. And God's like, well, if that's what you really want, I'll give it to you. And so God tells Samuel, the prophet, to go and find a guy called Saul. This is this guy here. And Saul becomes the first king of Israel. But unfortunately, Saul doesn't follow the Lord's ways. He isn't, he isn't a good king in terms of leading the people the way that God wants. So God says to Samuel, go to this other place, and I want you to find a guy called David, and I want you to anoint him as the new king, which is okay if you're David. Except Saul is still alive and still the king. Minor inconvenience. And so uh, Saul is obviously threatened by David. This is the David who slew Goliath. This is the David who, you know, as he was living in the desert because Saul was trying to kill him, because he was uh, jealous of David's fame, of his heart for God, of his military ability. Uh, In that time where David was in isolation, God brought like-minded people to him in his broken place because it turns out there are other people in the world who were broken. And asking questions. And were social rejects. And wanted a mission they could give their lives to. A family they could belong to. And a cause they could live for. Which is exactly what the church is by the way. A family of people who are broken. Looking for hope and help in Jesus. And so David's hiding out in this desert region called En Gedi. Saul hears about it from his intel. Takes 3,000 men. Which is like at that time a quite large army and goes looking for David in this place called the crags of the wild goats now we're told in verse 3 that he came to the sheep pens 
along the way, and a cave was there. And let me tell you something. If you're someone who says, oh, the Bible's made up, I can't believe it's all stories and fables, and, you know, white men made it for white power, and, you know, and it's just basically a misogynist book to keep men, you know, in control of women, and all these things that culture points and say, let me tell you, there's so much evidence to the contrary. For example, if you're going to set up a hero in a story, the bad guy doesn't go into a toilet, go into a cave to use the bathroom. That's not a good way to tell a story. Like, you make it much more, like David and Goliath, that's a good story. Saul going to the toilet, that's not a great story, guys. That won't sell tickets in the Odeon Cinema next week, let me tell you. But that's the truth, because that's what happened. Because Saul was a real man, and like any real man, Saul had a time to go. When the time to go came, he had to go. And so, again, because of the way things were back then, uh, he's with his army, he's on a horse, there's a cave, that's where you go to relieve yourself. But it turns out, as, as luck would have it, Totally coincidentally, when David heard Saul was coming, he divided up his army and told him, go find some caves and hide until Saul and his army have gone by, and then let's reunite. But it just turns out that the exact cave that David and his small posse were in is the exact same cave that King Saul chose to use as a bathroom. Now, let's just just try to get, get into the story here. Imagine being David. You're running for your life. What was your crime? You served the king well. You loved God. You stood up for your nation. He did nothing wrong. Like he did nothing wrong. And yet, there's this promise on your life. There's this sense of purpose, this sense of destiny. And yet, the person who's supposed to be your mentor, supposed to be like a, a spiritual father to you, is threatened by you and wants to destroy you. And you're living out in the wilderness. You can't visit family. You can't see your kids, perhaps. I mean, every day is a struggle. Food is hard. People judge you. I mean, you're, you're literally, your years are wasting away hiding in a cave while your enemy has been fed grapes in a palace. And you're praying, God, would you deliver me from the situation? Would you help me? Would you deal with my enemy? Would you bring justice? Would you, would you take me out of this cave, out of the desert? And would you, would you make the dream you gave me become a reality and one day in the very cave you're hiding in right in front of you with his back turned towards you is your enemy i mean what would you do what would you be thinking well we know what his men were thinking because in verse four they said this is the day this is the day david this is i'm sure there was this is the day david saw saw he's right there this is the day. He's like, shh. This is the day the Lord spoke about when he said to you, I will give your enemy into your hands for you to deal with him as you wish. They're like, this is it. This is the moment. This is, the, we, this is what we prayed for. This is what's been prophesied. This, this is God's hand on your life. It looks like, it seems like all the stars are aligning to confirm and affirm this is your moment. And so David gets excited, like, oh, it is my moment. And so he creeps up unnoticed, gets up to where near Saul is. And obviously, Saul's in the process of using the bathroom, so he's taking off his outer robe and he's doing his thing, uh, facing out of the cave, perhaps, making sure no one's watching him, back turned to the dark part of the cave. And we're told that David, David cuts a corner of Saul's robe off. Now, we don't know exactly what this is. Perhaps he, he was fully intending to kill him, 
and wants to take a, a prize, like his jacket, like a garment. But as David cut the robe, with, 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 with a plan in mind to cut the king, there's a moment we're told in the story. There's a moment of tension. There's a moment of tension that led to David feeling a hesitation. It seems like all the stars were lining. It seems like this is, this is an answer to prayer. It seems like this is what God wants me to do. This is what's wise. But David can't shake this feeling. Something's not right here. Something just, there's a red flag and I can't explain why it is. And David hesitated. Now, maybe he was thinking, I'm a warrior. This is not war. This is not how you kill a king. There was obviously rules of engagement back then like there are today. Like, this is murder. I'm going to sneak up in a cave and murder the king. Like the man that I've sworn to protect, the man I've sworn to serve, the man who God has put above me as my superior, I'm basically going to sneak up and stab him in the back. This is not war. This is not vengeance. This is not retribution. This is murder. And maybe David was thinking that there's, there's no blessing in betrayal. There's no blessing. This, this isn't a battle. This is a betrayal. I don't want my story, I don't want to tell my kids every single year at the Christmas dinner table that the, the way I became king was when the former king was in the toilet. I stabbed him in the back. That doesn't make a great story for your kids, does it? Like, tell me, Dad, tell me, God, how did you become a king? Well, let me tell you. That sucker got him straight between the, the, the shoulder blades. He didn't even see it coming. He was dead in a minute, and I became king. Something in David knew. Something in David understood this is not the kind of story I want to tell. Something in David knew, very importantly, that God does not bless what is done in betrayal. When we have to lie and cheat and steal our way into our future, when we have to achieve things at the cost of other human beings, when we have to achieve things that way, God will never bless that. God blesses integrity. God blesses honesty. God blesses righteous scales. God blesses servanthood. God blesses humility. God blesses wisdom. But God never bless. And you know what the thing is? We think, I'm not hurting anybody. It's a small lie. It's not big. Listen, every lie somewhere at some point is betraying someone or something. And God does not bless betrayal. We're told in verse 5 that what this looked like is, is David. Here's the key sentence I'll tell you about. Here's the key statement. David was conscience stricken ever been there before conscience stricken everything seemed to be working out exactly as it should there was right there position to strike but something in him says his conscience won't allow him there's an internal voice a red flag a check in his spirit saying this is not right and had David acted and ignored that red flag, had he brushed it aside, had he rushed through it, had he talked himself into it, we probably wouldn't be talking about him today as a good example. But thank God he didn't. He listened. Why? Because we think the outcome is always obvious, remember? We think we can predict our own future. We think, I know how it's going to play out. We, tell, we play the movie in our head. Oh, this and that, and then this is going to happen, and it's going to be great. But those you've lived for more than five minutes, you know that there's no guarantees that what's obvious will be an outcome. There's no guarantee. There's no certainty that what seems obvious now will become the actual outcome. David didn't want this story to be told. He didn't want his life 
and his legacy and his future and his kingdom, his career, his, his destiny to start in a moment that was marred with a lack of integrity, deceit and betrayal. David couldn't know for certain that by allowing Saul to go, that God would be faithful in another way to bring about his promise. But David knew in that moment, if I don't pay attention to this tension, if I don't, if I don't, if I don't watch that red flag, if I, don't, if I don't listen to that check in my spirit, something in me tells me, this is not just a decision that is made in the moment, this is part of a story that will shape my life and the lives of those who come after me. So David decides not to kill Saul. And in verse 6, he goes back to me and said, The Lord forbid. Where's David's, where's David's morality and motive coming from? From God. I have to answer to God. Because as much as I have to answer it to a king or to a government, I have to answer to God. The Lord forbid that I should do such a thing to my master, the Lord's anointed, or, or lay my hand on him, for he is the anointed Lord. David saying that God put the king where he should be. It's not my job to take the king off where he should be. Whatever God has put in place, let God do it. I will take care of what's mine. What's so interesting is that it seemed like room for all opportunity in terms of David's life actually became an object of regret because if they, what David's saying in his confession is if I had acted on what seemed like a perfect opportunity if I had taken the place of God in my life and tried to manufacture my own hands my own destiny at the cost of deceit and betrayal I would live with a lifetime of regret now of course David's the one feeling the tension right but his friends weren't they're like, are you, verse 7 says, David sharply rebuked them and did not allow them to attack Saul. Because they're going, we understand, David. Oh, you have attention. Oh, it's, oh, yeah. And you have, okay, red flag. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, listen, we're good friends. You don't kill Saul. We'll kill him for you. And we will take care of it. We feel no tension at all. And again, it wasn't because these men were evil murderers. It's because they're living in caves. Like, think of this. They know David is about to become king. But they know that more than likely, the way he'll become king is through a civil war. And war is bad every day of the week. But the worst kind of war is a war where a people fight itself. A civil war. And right now in Ireland, we're celebrating the centenary of our civil war. And it's heartbreaking to read the accounts of Irishmen killing Irishmen for Irish freedom. I mean, war is bad all the time, but it's really bad when you're killing your own people. Civil war is horrific. And these guys are smart guys. They're military guys. They can see civil war on the horizon. They can see their wives, their homes, their, their, their family. They're thinking, David, all we got to do is take him out. And it saves all this bloodshed. It saves all this trouble. We can get back to comfort and convenience. We can get back to, I mean, it just fast tracks our plan into the future but David was wise and there was something else going on here God's got a plan God's got a purpose and even though it seems counterintuitive right now if we would wait and allow God maybe there won't be a civil war maybe God won't allow the things that you're worried about to happen maybe God will make a way which in the end of course we need a story he does so the story goes in verse 8 as we finish it off uh, Saul finishes what he's doing he goes back out gets on his horse David then comes out of the cave and calls out, My Lord the King. He doesn't say, You, you Egypt, your man. Over here, look, it's me, David. Could have stabbed you in the back, huh? Like that, do you? Huh? No, he didn't. He said, My Lord the King. He showed him honor. 
Why? Because honor isn't something we give because the other person's honorable. Honor is something we give because we are honoring. Honor begins in us. David honors us. And so we're told when Saul looked behind him, David bowed down and prostrated himself. He not only did he honor him, calling him Lord and King, but he actually got down on his knees and literally prostrated himself uh, with his face to the ground. He said to Saul, why do you listen when men say David is bent on harming? So now David's calling out Saul's motives for trying to attack him. Verse 10 he says, this day you've seen with your own eyes how the Lord delivered you into my hands in the cave. Some urged me. This is so interesting. Some urge me to keep. There's always going to be people in your life that will urge you to do the wrong thing. What you need to figure out today is who are the people who urge you towards the right thing, towards attention, towards God and faith and hope and life, and who are people always pulling you away from it? And make a choice because your friends are who you are. Your friends shape who you become. Show me who you're running with and I'll show you where you're running to. And, and we got to be careful because sometimes we, we unwillingly or unknowingly allow voices into our life that subtly are urging us always towards the wrong thing. Some of our greatest regrets are not arrogance alone because friends who are supposed to look out for us and have our back convinced us that our choice, even though it was a bad choice, was the right choice and caused that regret. This is why we need connect groups. People who can call out good and God in us. He said, I will not lay my hand on the Lord because he is the Lord's anointed. And so David tells the story of how, look at your robe. And so, you know, Saul's and horse ripped up his robe. There's a big piece missing. David's like, you see, that's how close I came to killing you. Verse 12. And then David finishes off the speech with this. He says, and may the Lord judge between you and me. What's David saying? David said, I had the opportunity. I had you in my hand. I could have ended your life. I could have taken control of my destiny. I could have taken control of the army. I could have won today. I could have fast-tracked my destiny. But something in me told me that is not wise. And so what I've done is I've said, I'm giving it to God. Lord, you judge. Lord, I'm, I'm, I'm making you the referee. I'm making you the media. I'm giving you control. Let you be the judge between me, between me and my enemy today as to whether I was right or wrong. And may the Lord in due time avenge me. May he show me to be true. May he. And it basically David finishes off with what was then an old saying, which imagine how old it is now, which is from evildoers come evil deeds. So my hand will not touch you. Here's the bottom line. The bottom line, my friends, is David did not ignore the tension. David did not ignore the tension. The bottom line is David chose wisdom. And it was a choice. We saw it. It was a choice. He had all the evidence lined up in a way it seemed logical and rational and objective. He had friends telling him, go for it. Go on. Get in there. Get him. Stab him. We'll stop him too. We'll all stop him there. It'll be great. Come on, let's go. He had friends egging him on. But something inside of him said... No. Still, small voice said, it's not right. It's not good. It's not wise. David said, I won't, it's a typo here, I won't take matters into my own hands. I could, literally, but I won't. Instead, I'll wait and allow God. Who knows how David's story could have been different? 
Maybe like I said, we were talking about him today in a bad sense. But the reason why he's an example that we can look up today is because in that conscience-stricken moment, when that internal, internal red flag was raised, David made a choice to be wise. As we begin to bring this message to a close today, my question is very simple. Is there a tension in your life, in your world, that deserves your attention? Are you faced with a choice, career, study, is something a relationship? They're the most important ones, let me tell you. Are, you. are you right now in a place where something inside of it, there's a tension there that deserves your attention? Is there something that's causing a hesitation? Is there something in you? It's like, I just, it seems like logically, rationally, objectively, everything's lined up. It seems like everything points to, it seems like the stars are aligned. I talk to these friends and they all encourage me, this is the right thing, but something in me, something, there's something in me that says, stop. I want to encourage you very, very abruptly and very clearly today. If there's a hesitation in your life, stop. Stop now. Stop it all and stop completely. You think, but, but I'm too far in. I'm too committed. My, my, my opportunity to stop has gone. Let me tell you something. You may miss the red light, but stopping after it is always better than crashing into what's next. If you haven't crashed yet, there's time to stop. And let me tell you something. More than just time, there's grace from God to stop. Maybe you've, you've talked your way into, into a relationship that isn't healthy. It's not building up. It's not calling God out of you. It's pulling you away from faith and from, and from you know, God's plan. For Stop. Maybe you're doing something that's dishonest at work. And you know it is. It's kind of justifiable, but you know it is. And the same thing you're praying, God, bless me. God can't bless what's done in deceit. Stop. Maybe you're justifying why you're not more serious about your faith and why you don't, aren't more committed to God and committed to His plan for your life. And you're, There's an excuse for everything in the, under the sun. Stop it. Because what we're doing by not stopping is we are writing the story of our lives. And if we can be like David today, stop. Maybe one day we will have a story worth sharing with our kids and grandkids. It was a hesitation Pay attention. Pay attention. Pay attention to that hesitation. This is why we need community. This is why we need family. This is why we why we do connect groups. Because we need people around us, good and godly friends, that will help us pay attention to the attention and give us good advice. And if they can't give good advice, at least they'll do is give us good support. Because the next best thing, we can't find good advice, is having people who will support you in a healthy way. And we need to be connected. Because just coming to a service on Sunday, that's great, and we're glad you're here, and we're glad you're watching online. But living faith out every day in real life, practically, man, that's where the magic happens. That's where Christianity really becomes Christianity. And like I said back in week one, a special note to all of you who are parents or those of you who want to be parents. As you think about your future and the plans that you have and all and the dreams of your heart, understand the most significant thing you do with your life may not be something you do, but it may be someone you raise. And the decisions that you are making right now, are you going to set that person up for better, a better life? 
and better opportunities. Or it's taken away from them. But our life is not our own. It's shared with those that we love. Which is why, again, like I said at the beginning, we're launching a parenting course. We want to help people get better in parenting. They don't come with a manual, right? It's like, here's your child. Oh my gosh. This, this, I, we made this thing. Like, we're responsible for it. Oh my gosh, we have a child. What now? Well, go home. All the best. Let's look now. And you have to figure out. So we want to help people with wisdom when it comes to parenting. Whatever it is. Maybe it's not. We got, we got young adults groups. We got, you know, all, whatever it is. We want to help you. Because life is complicated. And we want to help. So pay attention. Pay attention. Let, let it bother you until you know why it's bothering you. Don't blind yourself to it. Don't brush by it. Don't uh, rush by it. Don't belittle it. Don't ignore it. Don't dismiss it. Don't talk yourself into it. Don't talk yourself out of it. Understand that the very tension you're feeling may be an answer to a prayer you prayed. You're thinking, what prayer did I pray? Maybe you're here, you're not a Christian, not Christ. You're thinking, I don't pray. Maybe the tension you're feeling is God answering the prayer that one night you prayed in your bedroom when no one was there to a, to a ceiling, not even fully believing it was God was there. He said, God, help me. God, protect me. God, don't let me go down like this. And we pray in a moment of desperation, not even fully believing that anyone is listening, but God is so faithful that he remembers the prayers that we've forgotten. And maybe that internal tension is God's way to the Holy Spirit saying, hey, don't go that way. Be wise. Follow my voice. Ask a better question. Make a better decision. And live with less regrets. What seems like room for opportunity may actually be an object of regret. How do we know the difference between what's, what's opportunity and what's regret? Wisdom. And where do we get wisdom? From God. And sometimes wisdom is waiting. Sometimes wisdom is saying, God, I don't know. I have this, I can, and I want to, but I choose to wait. 